When life is hard and times are difficult, where do you place your hope? Or when life is good, great, wonderful, where do you put your confidence? You know, I want you to think long and hard about that because it's so easy to have a radical disconnect between our heads and our hearts. Meaning, you might answer both questions, what's my hope in and what's my confidence in, one way in your head, but your life, so your time, your passions, your relationships, your schedule, your money, demonstrates that your heart is in a radically different place than your head. For example, you might say your hope is in Jesus, and yet your passions demonstrate that your hope is really in a relationship. So you're hoping to find a spouse, get married, and have a perfect life with two kids, a dog, and a house? Or maybe your hope is in a current relationship, and things are going great. But if you lost that person, you'd be devastated, not able to move on. Or maybe your hope is in a career and money. So that's where you find your security. And that's evident because your thoughts are tethered to your work. And you love thinking about money, how you can save it, what you can invest in, and making sure that your savings account is growing both now and for retirement. So you can live carefree, doing whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, for as long as you want. Or maybe your hope is in experiences and success which is highlighted by how often you look at Facebook and Instagram and compare yourself to others just to make sure that you're having more fun, more going to more places and having more stuff than they are. Or you're grumbling and frustrated because you realize they're having more fun, going more places and have more stuff. My point is everyone hopes for something. Everyone puts their confidence in something. God has hardwired us that way. So we're either hoping for something or we're hoping in something. And according to the Bible, there's only two places to look for hope. So we can either search for hope horizontally in this world. So hoping in relationships, comfort, security, success, experiences, possessions, money, All these things by your own efforts in this life. Or you can search for hope vertically. In the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And the promises and the truths that he provides for us in his word. And all I'm saying is hope either horizontally or vertically looks like something. You can see it. You can see it in your thoughts. You can see it in your actions, your attitudes, your relationships. You can see it in your passions, your desires, and you can certainly see it in your decisions. And if our hope is in this world so, so horizontally, then you need to know you will ultimately be disappointed. But if your hope is vertical, if your hope is in God, 
in the good news of the gospel. The Lord Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession for you. Then Paul assures us, Romans 5, 5, that our hope will not be disappointed because hope in the Lord Jesus will never be put to shame. He always and forever delivers on his promises. So that's the question. Where's your hope this morning? Where's your confidence? Hebrews chapter 3, 1 to 6 is going to challenge us that our hope must be fixed in the Lord Jesus. He must be the anchor of our souls because he's greater than Moses and he is the apostle and the high priest of our salvation. So he is worthy of more glory and honor and praise and he is our only hope and our only confidence for eternity. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me. The Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is on page 1002. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, also encourage you to grab my outline, Greater Than Moses is the title. Three points this morning. Jesus is our apostle and high priest. Jesus is worthy of more glory. Jesus is our only hope. Now as you're turning... Let me just remind you that the author of Hebrews is very systematic in his argument. So in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we were given the theme of the book that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, that he's the exact imprint of his nature, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, and after making purification for sin as our high priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're told Right out of the gate, this is who Jesus is. But to argue that point, the author spends the rest of chapter 1 proving that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then in chapter 2, he argues that Jesus had to be made a little lower than the angels, meaning he had to take on humanity, made like his brothers in all ways. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for sins, the sins of his people. Which brings us to chapter 3 and the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses. If you would follow along as I read chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. The author says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now before we consider Jesus, who is number one, the apostle and high priest of our confession, which is fascinating language, I want to start with A, considering the audience. 
because this is the first time that we've been addressed to the audience directly, right? The author says, verse one, therefore, holy brothers, that is you who share in a heavenly calling. So it's crystal clear, isn't it, that the author is writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. He's writing to holy brothers. If you remember my overview sermon, he's writing to exhort Jewish believers in Rome not to turn away from their faith in Jesus and revert back to Judaism, to the Mosaic law, to the old covenant, just to avoid being persecuted by embracing a religious system approved by the Roman authorities. But instead, to wholeheartedly think rightly, knowing that Jesus is greater, so that they might live rightly, drawing near to God, continue to draw near to God in faith, holding fast to their confession and therefore persevering in the midst of the persecution, knowing that if they do, they will receive the reward of God's eternal heavenly city. But it's places like this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, where we solidify that kind of thinking that the author is writing to Christians, that he's writing to believers. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly Calling. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Heavenly calling. Let's think about that for a moment. Because every single person is born in Adam. So we're sinners in need of a savior because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So every human being ultimately needs two things. They need a word from God and they need a way back to God. We need a word from God so we might know what he's like, what his purposes are, and what he desires and requires of us. But we also need a way back to God because to be cut off from God in death is to experience weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. So judgment for all eternity. So we all have two great needs. We need a word from God and we need a way back to God. Now consider how Hebrews 3.1 addresses those two needs. The author says to these dear believers, to these Christians, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of your confession. So Christians are people who have heard and have believed a heavenly calling. So it's a heavenly calling because it comes from heaven. So it comes from God. And it's a calling because it invites us, leads us, appeals to us, and calls us where? Back to God. Back to heaven. So it's a calling from God, and it's a calling to God. Isn't that awesome? Because it deals with our two greatest needs. We need a word from God, and we need a way back to God. You know, according to John Piper, Christians are people who have been gripped by this calling 
So the word of God broke through our resistance, took hold of us with the truth and the love of Christ and reconciled us back to God. And now it's leading us home to his eternal heavenly city, which means Christians are people who have great hope and great confidence because God has spoken to us from heaven and God is calling us back to heaven. Now, how is all of that possible? Well, that's B. Consider the Lord Jesus. The author writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So the reason Christians are people of great hope and great confidence has nothing to do with ourselves. Instead, we're well aware that we're sinners and that we've fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, there are sinners of every kind in this room this morning. Sexual sinners, lying sinners, judgmental sinners, stealing sinners, proud sinners, disrespectful, dishonoring, and disobedient sinners. We're an equal opportunity church, aren't we? And we're open to sinners of every kind. But you have to be crystal clear about that, don't you? Because that's what solidifies the fact that we have absolutely no shred of hope and no confidence in ourselves. Not only for salvation, but for sanctification. For the ability to make it back home to heaven. So the hope of this heavenly calling does not rest on our righteousness at all. If it rested on our righteousness, then we would be hopeless. But instead, it's bound up. It's bound up in Jesus. That's why the author says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, before we think about Jesus... As our apostle and our high priest, let me just point out the obvious. The author is clearly speaking to Christians. He's speaking to believers. Yet he's calling those believers to consider Jesus. Now, why is that? I mean, some of you might think that considering Jesus is only for unbelievers. But that's just not the case. Instead, the Bible is crystal clear that you never get over the gospel, which means you never get over Jesus. But instead, you just keep considering him. You keep meditating on him. You keep delighting in him. You keep turning to him, to his person and his work. And you keep glorying in the reality that it is only in Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and his gift of the Spirit that you can ever live rightly before a holy God. So it's absolutely necessary to keep considering Jesus. That's why the author said back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, that we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard about Jesus, lest we drift away from him. That has everything to do with the fact that he's our apostle and that he's our high priest. Now, apostle is a strange word to describe Jesus, isn't it? 
I mean, when you hear that word, you hear the word apostle, don't you immediately think of Peter and Paul, Matthew and Mark, John and the rest of the 12 disciples? Isn't that what immediately comes to your mind? And yet apostle literally means the sent one. So Jesus is the sent one from God who came with a revelation of God's heavenly calling. So God the Father sent God the Son to call us. How does he call us? Well, he calls us by declaring the good news of the gospel. Jesus said, Mark 4, 15, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What should we do then? Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus is our apostle. He's the sent one from God. But Jesus is also our great high priest, which means Jesus is not just sent from God, but he's also our way back to God. Because Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice so there can be reconciliation once for all between God and man. In fact, if you would, go ahead and flip back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Look at what the author says. The author tells us that Jesus has been made like his brother in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For what reason? He tells us to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, do you see how Jesus, as our high priest, has everything to do with reconciling us back to God? Because propitiation means to make atonement for sin. It means to assuage God's wrath. It means to reconcile us back to God. That's what our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, does. And that's not just a once and done, but that's an ongoing and forever so yes, he pays for our sin once for all on the cross and assuages God's wrath, but he also ever lives to intercede for us over and over and over again as we continue the good fight of faith, putting sin to death and walking in righteousness so that we might make it home to heaven. So the writer is saying, you Christians you who share in this calling from heaven to heaven, you should have all the confidence in the world that you have heard from God through your apostle and should have great hope that you're going to go back to God, loved and reconciled, safe and secure, because you have a great high priest who's made atonement for your sins and ever lives to intercede for you. You Christians, consider Jesus, think about Jesus, meditate on Jesus, listen to Jesus, and please never think, even for a second, that you'll ever get over Jesus. Jesus is your apostle. Jesus is your high priest. Jesus ever lives to intercede for you, which means Jesus is your final word, and Jesus is your only way back to God. You know, if you will, the entire book of Hebrews is written for this one purpose, that we might consider Jesus. 
that we would consider him over and over and over again, looking at him through different facets, better understanding how the Old Testament pointed to him. That's what Hebrews is about. Consider Jesus. You know, one commentator was so helpful to me personally, just by saying, there is more to consider about Jesus than you could ever exhaust in your entire life. Meaning you could literally think about Jesus, ponder Jesus, meditate on Jesus, his person and his work, your entire life, and you would never, ever even get close to coming to the end of Jesus. Here's his illustration. If your mind is like a compass, lock that in. Your mind is like a compass. Think about a compass. Your mind is like a compass moving through a world that is full of magnets, which makes it spin from from one thing to another, moving from this thing to that thing, from relationships to work to success to money to comfort to security to your retirement, to your vacation. And what you need to do is work hard and labor to consider Jesus and to make Jesus the North Pole of your entire life. In fact, force your mind to come back to him. You're considering other things. Make your mind come back to Jesus over and over and over again throughout each and every day. (laughs) Isn't that necessary? Because your mind doesn't get distracted once a year. Your mind gets distracted every half second. And it needs to come back to Jesus. Let Jesus be the North Pole of your thinking. Consider Jesus. This morning, the author of Hebrews wants us to consider how Jesus is greater than Moses so that your hope and your confidence and your heavenly calling will only be strengthened this morning. As you consider Jesus as being greater than Moses, it'll be strengthened all the more. So you're steady and secure, and certain about your eternal well-being. Number one, Jesus is our apostle. Jesus is our high priest. Now, number two, Jesus is worthy of more glory. As we move forward, notice how the comparison with Moses starts in verse two. The author says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Verse two, who was faithful to him, to God, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So verse 2 introduces a comparison with Moses that shows how Jesus and Moses were both faithful in God's house, which, by the way, is a picture. God's house is a picture of God's people. Verse 6 makes that clear. Look at verse 6, that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Notice, we are his house, God's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence, our boasting in our hope. So verse 2 starts with a comparison before we ever get to a contrast. 
And I say it that way using those words, comparison and contrast, because the author is not speaking negatively about Moses in any way, but instead arguing that Jesus is faithful to God's people just as Moses was faithful to God's people. In fact, do you remember Numbers chapter 12? I'm sure that's right up on the list of verses that you memorize, Numbers chapter 12, right? You're working through Leviticus, you've nailed that all down, so now you're going to memorize Numbers 12. Well, let me remind you of Numbers chapter 12. There was this little incident where Aaron and Miriam, so Moses' siblings, Aaron and Miriam, were speaking badly about Moses. And God hears it, and he immediately addresses it. Numbers 12.6 says, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called out Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. Can you even imagine that? Holy smokes. God says to them, says to Aaron and Miriam, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision and I speak to him in dreams. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he, Moses, beholds the form of the Lord. The writer of the Hebrew of, of the author of Hebrews is not speaking negatively about, about Moses in any way. Nor does the rest of the Old Testament. Think about the rest of the Old Testament. God called Moses at the burning bush. God used Moses to liberate God's people. God led Moses. God spoke to Moses. God provided for Moses. And God protected Moses. Took him all the way home to the promised land. My point is that it's impossible to think about the Old Testament without considering Moses and without viewing Moses as an absolute hero. And yet, just by reading your Bible, it's crystal clear Jesus is greater than Moses. Meaning Moses was just a man. Jesus is the God-man. Moses was a sinner. Jesus is sinless. Moses led God's people out of slavery to a physical promised land through the death of a Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose body was broken and whose blood was shed to deliver God's people, the people of God, meaning the church, from slavery to sin, death, and the devil and take them all the way home to the spiritual promised land of God's eternal heavenly city. So yes, without a doubt, Moses is worthy of glory and honor and praise as a man, but how much more glory and honor and praise is Jesus worthy of as the God-man? So A, comparison with Moses. Now B, contrast to Moses. Because the author highlights two specific ways in which Jesus is worthy of more glory and honor and praise than Moses. Look at verse 3. It says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. That's argument one. Here's argument two, verse five. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So two ways in which Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, and they're listed right there in your outline. Number one, Jesus built the house, so Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus owns the house, so Jesus is the son. So Jesus is worthy of more glory. We totally get more glory, don't we? I mean, we understand the concept of more glory. I mean, all you have to do is think about the Olympics. We totally understand that certain athletes deserve more glory because some compete and deserve bronze glory. Others compete and deserve silver glory. And of course, the best of the best, at least in the Olympics, deserve the glory of a gold medal. And they get to stand on the top pedestal during the ceremony and their nation's uh, thing is sung. National anthem is sung. Obviously not that big of a deal to me. (laughs) Verse 3 says, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Reason number one, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. In other words, Jesus is to the people of God as a builder is to a physical house. And Moses is to the people of God as one of the people of God is in the household of God. Which means Jesus built the house that includes Moses. Which means Jesus is God. And Jesus created Moses. Now we've heard that before, right? Hebrews 1-2 says Jesus created the world. But let it just sink in this morning with regard to Moses. So consider this. Jesus is your apostle. Jesus is your high priest. Jesus is the one who brought you a heavenly calling, a word from God and a way back to God because Jesus is God. Jesus is the builder. Jesus is the maker. Jesus is the sustainer of all God's people, including the faithful Old Testament hero, Moses. So there's really no comparison, is there, between Jesus and Moses? Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is worthy of more honor and glory and praise because in him hangs all your hopes of heaven and all your confidence that your sins are forgiven and that you will have their sins continue to be forgiven so that you make it all the way home to glory, which means Jesus has to be greater in your heart and in your mind. The greater Jesus is in your heart and mind, the greater your hope, the greater your confidence, your greater the ability to persevere in your faith. Does that make sense to you this morning? It's critical this morning for us to consider Jesus. In fact, let me continue the Olympic Games illustration. Hopefully this helps. 
Because this contrast between Moses and Jesus is kind of like a big group of decathlon athletes standing around bragging about who's the best. Jesus is just sitting there listening to them go on and on, one guy after the other, right? Can you picture this? Decathlon athletes all comparing one to another, and Jesus is sitting there. Right, So the decathlon athletes, one by one, are saying things like this. I threw the javelin further than anyone else, so I'm the greatest. Other athletes says, no, 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 I ran the fastest, so I'm the greatest. No, 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 I jumped the highest, threw the shot, put the furthest, triple jumped the longest, so I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. Until finally, they look at Jesus and say, how about you, old man? In my little illustration, he's the ancient of days. He's just sitting there. And Jesus says to them, well, I made all of you. So I guess that makes me the greatest. Verse 3 says that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of the house is worthy of more glory than the house itself. So in the same way, Jesus is worthy of more glory than any other man, woman, child, or Olympic athlete. Why? Because Jesus made every man, woman, child, and Olympic athlete. Jesus made Moses. And Jesus made you. So Jesus is the greatest because Jesus is God. Verse 4 makes that abundantly clear when it says that every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is the greatest because Jesus is God. And Jesus is the greatest because Jesus made you. But he doesn't just make you, does he? He offers to save you and promises to sanctify you so that you will make it all the way home to glory. And that's the point, isn't it? That the word of our apostle is a sure word. It's a steady word. It is a certain word. Why is it a certain steady and sure word? Because it's a word from God. And the atoning work on the cross by our hard priest is a sacrificial work, a sufficient work, and it's a finished work. Why is it a finished work? Because it's been accomplished by God himself. So consider Jesus, who is worthy of more glory, honor, and praise than Moses, because he created Moses, and he created you. Which brings us to the second way in which Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, because Jesus is not just the builder of the house, he's also the owner of the house. Number two, Jesus owns the house, so Jesus is the son. Look with me at verse five. The author says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, let me just start with this question. What does it mean that Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant? Well, the author answers that question by saying faithfulness means testifying to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, Moses' ministry displayed or better yet foreshadowed the superiority of the coming Christ. 
So Moses' life was always meant to point forward to the Lord Jesus, who is by definition the greater than Moses. In fact, the Old Testament already tells us that. If you just think about Deuteronomy chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses himself says, and I quote, that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him that you should listen. Says it again in verse 18, only this time the Lord says it himself. The Lord says, I will raise up for my people a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever does not listen to the words he speaks in my name, to that person, I will require it of them. So the whole Old Testament is just one big arrow pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. And Moses faithfully played his part. And he discharged his duties faithfully. How did he do it? Faithfully. As a servant. But Jesus is the son. And there's a radical difference, isn't there, between the servant and the son. Because the servant serves the house. But the son, the son inherits the house, which means the son owns the house, rules the house, and must therefore provide for the house. But isn't it glorious? That's exactly what the Lord Jesus has done. Jesus is our apostle. Jesus is our high priest. So he provides for his people by addressing their greatest need, being a word from God and by being a a way back to God who came to preach the good news of the gospel and offer his own life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Now, not only once and done, but ongoing and forever. Because as our high priest, he always lives to intercede for us. That's how the son provides, but the son also rules. So on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection, he's given all authority in heaven and on earth and therefore commands all God's people to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that King Jesus has commanded. So the son provides for God's people, the son rules over God's people, and the son owns God's people. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are sons and daughters of the most high God. So without a doubt, Jesus owns the house. Jesus is the son. Now, as we transition from number two, Jesus is worthy of more glory to number three. Jesus is our only hope. I think what strikes me the most about this whole analogy of the house is the fact that the author wants us to immediately apply it to our own lives. Wants us to immediately grab a hold of the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses and that we are his house if our faith is in him. Look at what he says in verse 6. And we are God's house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the author is clearly moving, right, from from declaration to application. 
But the truth is that if, right, there's an if right there in verse 6. You see the if? That if makes a ton of people nervous. Because it seems to suggest that our salvation is conditional. That the people of God are only those who, regardless of the difficulties, the trials, and the tribulations, including persecution, believe in Jesus and therefore hold fast to their confidence and boast in their eternal hope. And I think that's true. It is conditional, but it's not conditional on you, meaning your work, your effort, all that you do. It's, continue, it's conditional on the fact that you keep your hope steadfast in Jesus. Do you see that? Do you understand that? You need to understand Hebrews as we move forward more than any other book in the Bible is constantly doing two things side by side. Number one, it affirms the sufficiency of Christ, not only to save you, but to sanctify you and to cause you to persevere firm in your faith all the way to the end. It will constantly point us to the sufficiency of Christ. But it is also going to constantly warn us that we need to keep our hope fixed on Jesus and not turning away from Jesus. It's going to warn us of the terrifying consequences that will be ours if we turn away from the Lord Jesus. Back to the Old Testament law, back to the Old Covenant, back to the sacrificial system, and this morning, back to the inferiority of Moses. So be clear. Our works can neither save us nor keep us saved. Our efforts, our obedience can neither establish a right relationship with God nor keep a right relationship with God. Instead, only faith in Christ can save us. And only faith in Christ can sanctify us, preserve us, and protect us. Therefore, we must hold fast to Jesus, this glorious truth, and make sure that our confidence is in Christ and in Christ alone. And please, be clear. That might sound super easy, but that's not an easy thing to do with the difficulties of life. Why is it so difficult for us to hold on to Jesus that that is our only hope and our only confidence? Because life is hard. And we are so instinctively works-oriented. So we're prone. We are prone to run to our own efforts. Saved by grace, yes, but suddenly in our minds we become sanctified by works. Especially when life gets hard and we're being persecuted specifically for believing in Jesus because that's exactly what's going on with these Jewish believers. They're being persecuted in Rome for their faith in Christ and they're being tempted, they're being tempted to ease up, to let go, to move away, to turn back to that which is no hope at all. I mean, can you even imagine if, if, if Moses was standing there? Like, just picture this in your mind, because this is the argument, right? So, so over here is Jesus, hope in Jesus, and over here is Moses. And he's standing here. 
And, and the people are looking to Jesus, but the difficulties of life and the persecution that's happening is causing them to say, I'm not sure Jesus is worth it anymore. And they look to Moses. What do you think Moses does? What do you think Moses would say to them? They would say, there's no hope here in me. You have to look to Jesus. Your only hope for eternal life, your only hope to persevere is in Jesus. Okay, so now let's connect the dots. Because that's not the world we live in, is it? You're not prone to look to the Mosaic Covenant, are you? You're not prone to think, hey, the best way for me to get to heaven is to keep the Ten Commandments. You're not prone to do that, are you? You're not. But in our day and age, believing in Jesus is getting harder, isn't it? And so what are you tempted to do? You're tempted to let go of Jesus. Ease up a bit on Jesus and move over here to a little bit more secular thinking. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I'm telling you, if this person is clear, it's saying there's no hope here. Your only hope is in Jesus. Your confidence needs to be in Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. Our confidence must therefore be in Christ alone. His person, his work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, and the fact that he ever lives to intercede for us. The fact that he is the only one who met our two greatest needs, right? That in Christ we've got a word from God and we've got a way back to God. Jesus is our only hope. When that's clear in our hearts, in our minds, then that becomes our greatest boast. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the soul sings. Paul declared it, 1 Corinthians 2.5. He says that he would know nothing among anyone except Christ and him crucified, and that he would only boast in the cross of Christ by which the world had been crucified to him and him to the world. So here's my question as we close. Where's your hope this morning? Where's your confidence? Is it in yourself? Are you living this life by your own effort and for your own glory? Is that your hope? Is your hope that somehow you're just better than the other guy and that God's going to grade on the curve. Is that your hope? Are you trusting in your good works? That's the Mosaic law. That's the old covenant. And Moses is saying to you this morning, there is no hope in you. Your only hope is to hold fast 
Grab on for all your worth to Jesus. So evaluate your heart. Are you hoping in yourself? Are you hoping in a relationship? You think a relationship is what's going to bring you joy and contentment. Is that where that's going to be found? Or maybe your hope is in your career, your money, your investments, your retirement plan. Is that where your hope is tethered to financial security, to your retirement, to doing whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want? Or maybe your hope is lodged in your good health and your physical fitness. So you're banking on a, on a body that's going to go the distance and on doctors who can fix anything that goes wrong, from back pain to COVID to cancer. You know, I'm not here to say that all of those things are bad things. But I am here to say that if that's what your hope is lodged in, then you will ultimately be disappointed because none of those things are going to last. I appeal to you to consider Jesus, to think about Jesus, the reality that Jesus is our apostle, that Jesus is our high priest, and that Jesus is your only hope of salvation because he's addressed our two greatest needs. He's a word from God and he's the only way back to God. I appeal to you to believe in Jesus. And for you, dear believer, my encouragement is for you to persevere in believing in Jesus, to persevere in finding your hope and your confidence in Christ alone. That's why our passage concludes by saying we are God's house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The greatest evidence that we're actually part of God's house is that we never throw away our hope in Christ. Hebrews 10.35 says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, which means we must never drift into indifference. We must never move in the direction. Here's believing in Jesus. We must never move in the direction of believing in something else. We must never have our hearts and our affections moved away from considering Christ as our only hope and our only confidence to something other than Jesus. And I'm telling you, the times when you're going to struggle the most are when life gets really hard or when life is really good. When life gets really hard, you start saying, I'm not sure this is worth it. Maybe there's another way. And when life is really good, you just kind of forget about these things. And you just start delighting, and boy, I'm pretty impressive. I've kind of got it all figured out. Things are going well for me. So what do we need to do? What's the solution when times are really hard and when life is really good? Oh, praise God for the simplicity of the Bible. 
Because the author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Delight yourself in Jesus. Glory in the simple yet wonderful reality that God sent Jesus. And who Jesus is in his person and his work. He is your high priest. He came. He laid down his life. He sacrificed. He suffered so that he can reconcile to you to God. And right now, he ever lives to intercede for you. There's not a single thing in your life that he's not overseeing. He's over the good days and he's over the hard days. And he's working in each and every day to make sure that you make it all the way home to heaven. Is, is that not a glorious thought? Like when life is really hard to know that he's got me and he's working in all of this to make sure that I'm going to make it home. Oh, dear believer, consider Jesus. Never, ever get over Jesus. He is our apostle and he is our great high priest. He's the word from God and he's our way back to God. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. But where is Jesus seated? At the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he'll take you there too, if you look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we want to be people who look to Jesus. I pray for every heart and every mind that is hearing my words. Lord, that as we look at Hebrews chapter 3, 1 to 6, that if there's any confusion about the house or Moses or any of those things, that we would just hold fast to these two words. Consider Jesus. Lord, I pray that our hope and our confidence would be fixed in the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, we are so grateful to know that you sent a word from God so that we might have a way back to God. And it's all in Jesus. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.